A special thank you goes out to Kevin Corley, who supported the podcast by using the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show's notes. Thanks, Kevin. Kevin included the events of the Heron Coal Massacre, covered here in episode 508, in two of his published novels, 16 Tons and 13 Steps for Charlie Berger. There wasn't a more effective police officer on the force during his tenure, and if anyone back then didn't believe it, they could just ask him. Today we're discussing Clifton, R. Woldridge, Chicago's real life, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. One day after the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, the Chicago Evening Journal reported, quote, The city is infested with a horde of thieves, burglars, and cutthroats bent on plunder and who will not hesitate to burn, pillage, and even murder as opportunity may seem to offer them to do so with safety. End quote. Very visual, albeit maybe a little heavy-handed, but you get the idea. Chicago had an early crime problem. Chicago also had to deal with issues like diseases, like cholera and smallpox, mainly due to the rapidly growing city with little in the way of proper sanitation. What Chicago needed, in addition to a proper sewage system, was a crusading cop to reassure locals that crooks and criminals will eventually get caught and that good prevails over evil. What Chicago needed was Clifton R. Woldridge. Born in February of 1854 in Franklin County, Kentucky, Clifton Rodman Woldridge was one of eight children born into a family of farmers. He received a public school education and at age 14 started work as a shipping clerk and collector for the Washington Foundry. In St. Louis, Missouri, Wolger spent a year in Washington, D.C. from March 1871 through December 1872, then went to work for a railroad where he stayed for nine years. In the late 1870s and early 1880s, Woldridge was involved in mining before moving to Chicago in August of 1884 where he spent two years working with the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railway. Along the way, Clifton Woldridge married a woman named Cora. In 1880, they welcomed a daughter, Arabella Spencer, followed by another daughter, Ethel, in 1893. According to the 1900 U.S. Census, at that time the family was living at 35th Street and Indiana Avenue, not far from where White Sox Park stands today. Wildridge started out, as many cops do, as a patrolman working his way up to detective, then eventually a fraud investigator. Wildridge worked for a time under Police Chief Francis O'Neill, Chicago's savior of Irish music, discussed in episode 419 of this podcast. Their relationship seemed to change over the years, though... O'Neill once said of Woldridge in a foreword to one of Woldridge's books, quote, To whom it may concern, having known Detective Officer Clifton R. Woldridge officially since 1893, 
I take pleasure in testifying to his fidelity and efficiency in the performance of his duty. Such qualities has he displayed that he is usually detailed on police work requiring intelligence, persistence, and integrity. Officer Woldridge is the special version of the criminal element, and when he is assigned to any particular line of police work, I am satisfied that the very best possible results will be accomplished. It's true, much like Chief O'Neill spent his off hours traveling around Chicago looking for Irish musicians, Clifton Woldridge spent his off hours as a writer, eventually penning a number of books between 1901 and 1918 with titles such as 20 Years a Detective in the Wickedest City in the World, The Devil and the Grafter, Gambling Exposed, Hands Up in the World of Crime, or 12 Years a Detective. In one book, Woldridge explains how he is a master of disguise, becoming different characters as needed to infiltrate criminal enterprises. A few of his characters included... Heck Houston, a stock raiser from Wyoming. This is the one he would wear in the Stockyard District. With his giant beard and oversized cowboy hat, I'm not sure who he fooled. Policy Sam Johnson, who Woldridge would dress up as when he was, quote, doing detective duty among the lowest and most disreputable criminals, end quote. It's tough to tell in the old photo, but I think he's wearing blackface. He also had a bearded character he called Jew in the Ghetto. We're going to ignore that one and all its horrible stereotypes. Woldridge did have a man of society in a tux character as, according to one of his books, quote, some of the most dangerous grafters in the world hobnob with the elite, end quote. All of these disguises and ruses reminded me of a story my friend Steve told me about his dad, Jimmy Davern. Jimmy Davern was a Korean War veteran turned Chicago cop who was part of a group of police who patrolled the public transit system, the L, back in the early 1970s when crime was really out of control on the rails. As part of Chicago's Mass Transit Special Operations Unit, sometimes called the decoy unit, Jimmy Davern would ride on the rougher L cars in plain clothes, often pretending to be a businessman who was drunk or even passed out. Sometimes he wore a gas station attendance outfit, a supermarket employee's coat, a soldier's uniform, or a department store delivery uniform. With his shiny gold watch in plain view, it wasn't long before some ne'er-do-well, not the word my friend Steve uses, uh, who would try to rip Jimmy Davern off, at which point his fellow cops, watching from nearby, would jump in and arrest the bad guy. I got so into the story of Jimmy Davern and Chicago's Mass Transit Special Operations Unit of the 1970s that I almost didn't finish this one on time. I will definitely circle back to that story in a future episode. September of 1906 brought an interesting story involving Clifton Woldridge. Woldridge was part of a raid on a con game happening at 184 Seabor Street, where, you might be thinking, 
Exactly. Seabor Street, that's spelled S-E-B-O-R, was later renamed Harrison Street, and the 184 house number changed to 731 during the renumbering project of 1909. The address where this occurred, now 731 West Harrison Street, long since demolished, is about where Harrison Street goes over the Kennedy Expressway. Where was I? Oh, the con game. It was reported that a Mrs. Catherine Nichols, 50, and her daughters Jenny, 28, described as, quote, unquote, strong-armed, and Sarah, a blonde of 25, were discovered at 184 Seaboard Street with 26 spectators, most ready to believe the Nichols ladies could communicate with the dead during a seance and heal physical issues. The dead reportedly did not alert Mrs. Nichols and her daughters to Clifton Woldridge and the six other Chicago cops waiting to bust them. Two of Woldridge's men posed as believers, with Woldridge reportedly waiting outside, as he later explained, quote, I arrested this same bunch in March of 1905, so there's no use of me going and getting rapped on the head. I tried to arrest them single-handed, and they tried to kill me with a coal bucket till I stood them off with my revolver, threatening to kill the first man or woman who laid a hand on me, end quote. When the cops announced themselves and many of the guests bolted for the exit, Woldridge suffered a cut on his nose. This con game came to the attention of Chicago's finest from a Miss Moral Miller who worked at a ladies' barber shop at 261 Clark Street. Hold on. That address is now 828 North Clark Street. It seems Miss Miller traveled to Chicago from Portland, Oregon, as she was convinced Mrs. Nichols could cure... Miller's deafness during a seance for which Moral Miller paid $25, a little more than $800 in today's money. Spoiler, it did not work. As for the Sherlock Holmes thing, that appeared in a November 1906 article about Woldridge, which included the following. Chicago may be surprised to learn that it has a Sherlock Holmes of its own, but it has. Furthermore, here is where a Sherlock Holmes belongs, on the staff of the superintendent of police, working from the central detail of detectives. His name is Clifton R. Woldridge. A March 1907 article in the Broad Axe newspaper in Salt Lake City, Utah, credited Woldridge with investigating the following activities in Chicago just within the past year. Brokers, wildcat insurance, fake mines and oil wells, turf swindles, home buying swindles, fake bond and investment companies, bucket shops, blind pools in grains and stocks, pool rooms, handbooks, fake mail order houses, ordinary gambling concerns, matrimonial bureaus, fake book concerns, fake underwriting, fake banks, collecting agencies, fake medicine companies, clairvoyance, fortune tellers, palmists, bogus charities, wiretappers, fraudulent employment agencies, fake doctors, airline railroads, I don't know what that is, and land swindlers. Now, the fake insurance companies had become a huge problem in Chicago, and for some time, mail-order spouses were also a big swindle in this wonderful city. Single men and women looking to meet a partner would engage a service that promised them an attractive mate, 
showing them a picture of a gorgeous lad or lassie. The wannabe would then pony up cash while being promised a future love connection. The swindlers would often show the same photo over and over to prospective clients, and then after they collected stacks of cash from local lonely hearts, they would close up shop and move on dastardly. After 15 years at Chicago Central Police Station, Woldridge was demoted in 1907 in the midst of power struggles among Chicago's police higher-ups. There were also a few issues caused by Woldridge that didn't win him any new friends. After the demotion, the Inter-Ocean newspaper here in Chicago described Woldridge as bereaved but not bitter, oppressed but forgiving, disappointed in his ambitions, but loyal to those who have shattered his hopes. I kind of love that. Woldridge's new role would be walking a beat as a patrolman in the city's Southside Cottage Grove area. Quote, I'm on the police force to serve the public, Woldridge said. Wherever the chief of police or the mayor sees fit to send me, I will go and do my duty. Now, at this point, Woldridge wasn't a kid anymore, nor was he an old man at 53 years of age, but he must have known his time on the force was winding down. Woldridge's personal situation got worse a little more than a year later in December of 1908, when Cora Woldridge, his wife of 20 years, was granted a decree of divorce from Clifton. Cora Woldridge testified to several acts of cruelty by her husband, including numerous physical ones that left her with bruises, scars, and in one case, a fractured jaw. These stories were corroborated by their daughter, Ethel. Cora Woldridge never remarried and died in 1952 at the age of 92 in her home at 4448 North Hazel Street in Chicago's uptown neighborhood. In 1909, after giving 21 years of service to the Chicago Police Department, Clifton Woldridge resigned from the force. His plan was to open his own detective agency in Chicago and tour the country, talking about his success as a detective and coaching people on how not to be victims of crime. Woldridge's popularity extended outside of Chicago to places like Minneapolis, Minnesota, Woldridge would regularly make the news just for being in the city. One article in March of 1912 reads more like a puff piece, including the following paragraph. Mr. Woldridge is 59 years old, a native of Franklin County, Kentucky. He has a keen gray eye surmounted by shaggy, sandy lashes and is the embodiment of physical strength and physique. He is guarding closely the secret of his visit to Minneapolis. Clifton Woldridge's speaking tours included names like Chicago After Dark, The Mysteries of Chicago's Underworld Unveiled, and The Shadows of a Great City. Now, as for that wickedest city in the world thing included in one of his book titles, I gotta imagine it was more of a marketing gimmick for Woldridge to sell books. 
I found an article in the Minneapolis Star Tribune that claimed in 1914, Irkutsk, a city in Siberia, had a population of 120,000 with 500 murders committed there on average. That means one inhabitant in 240 died a violent death. Making those numbers worse, only 1 in 10 alleged murderers were brought to trial and only half of those were found guilty. The next time someone takes a negative shot at Chicago, spin around and say, things may be not great, but at least we aren't Irkutsk in 1914, and then walk away knowing you've bested them. The escapades of Clifton Wooldridge took another sour turn in December of 1912 when the, quote, nemesis of all criminals, end quote, was robbed. According to the newspaper report, Chicago police chiefs and patrolmen, many of whom had worked with Wooldridge, refused to believe the report, but it was later verified Chicago's most noted sleuth, as the Tribune called him, was on a West Side streetcar when a pickpocket lifted Woldridge's wallet containing $25, a little more than $750 in today's money. The writer of the article added, quote, If the pickpocket knew half as much about the man on his trail as the detective tells of himself in his book, the criminal probably will not take chances on giving himself up, but commit suicide. Now that is some old-timey journalism. Sheesh. One policeman who was allegedly praising Woldridge's arrest record was questioned by a reporter who pointed out that the robbery happened on October 26th and the thief had still not been caught. The policeman assured the reporter Woldridge would get his man. In his later years in Chicago, Woldridge acted as the treasurer and chairman for the Apollo Commandery Knights Templar. Never have I belonged to an organization with a name as cool as that. When Clifton Woldridge died at the age of 79 in August of 1933, he had been living at 1434 North Clark Street and was buried at Irving Park Cemetery on Irving Park Road, just west of Harlem. Hospital attendants at the county hospital where Woldridge passed claimed Woldridge was penniless when he died. A sad turn of events for a dynamic character who for a time featured so prominently as Chicago's real-life Sherlock Holmes. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Clifton Wooldridge, the Sherlock Holmes of Chicago. This episode was researched, written, recorded, catered, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. If you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, you know what? I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. That amazing art for the podcast you see used on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages, that was created by the inimitable John K. Schneider. If you need art for your project, he's your dude. John can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArt 
jks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.